You're listening to TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. TalkZone.com. Now, The Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. This is the Dr. Larry Robbins Show. I'm here each and every week with my co-host, Susie Robbins. I'm a neurologist. My host, my co-host, Susie, is a social worker. And we bring you the interesting medical stories of the week. This week, we're going to touch on a whole bunch of topics. Usually, we spend five or ten minutes on each topic, but we're just going to hit uh, a lot of bullet points this week. Because there's been all kinds of interesting medical stories and tidbits in the news. Now, there was an interesting story about statins, which are Zocor, Lipitor, Pravacol, Mavacor. There's a couple generics out now. Helping survival in lung patients. Now, statins are used for cholesterol, which should help decrease your risk for strokes and heart attacks. But in this study, they helped lung patients with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And this is the third or fourth study that have shown uh, that these medicines, the statins, Zocor, Pravacol, Lipitor, etc., Crestor, help other things other than what they were intended to. And it's actually a, a good side effect of some medicines that they can help other things. The statins have been bantered about, uh, about maybe helping Alzheimer's uh, and other things. But I think that uh, the jury is still out on that. But in this study, the statins did help lung disease, and I think that as a class, these are pretty safe drugs overall. Now, on another front, there was an interesting study looking at gambling in Parkinson's patients. Now, some Parkinson's patients, uh, Parkinson's is, is an illness that usually happens in the 60s, 70s, 80s, but sometimes younger, uh, such as with Michael J. Fox, where people get somewhat rigid, they have trouble walking, they shuffle along, they lose expression in their face, uh, they get a tremor where their hands are trembling, and they slowly lose their ability to, to think. So Parkinson's is not great, although the medicines really can help, and uh, even if people are not having any luck with the medicine, sometimes there's actually surgery now for Parkinson's. But it's been noticed that on some medicines with Parkinson's, people become addictive gamblers. Some people who've gone on the medicines at age 50 who never gambled all of a sudden are on the internet all night on casinos, are running to the local casino and losing all their money. Now this study looked at why some people with Parkinson's turn to gambling. It's not that many people uh, who do, but the compulsive gamblers were younger when they were diagnosed with Parkinson's. So 50 versus uh somebody who's 80 who's diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, the people who became gamblers had a personal or family history of alcohol abuse and were on medicines that increased dopamine, which most of the Parkinson's medicines do. So it's the younger patients with Parkinson's who are more likely to become gamblers. And they also had higher scores, the gamblers did, who were par had Parkinson's, on impulsive and novelty-seeking behavior. And they did have some increase in uh, scores for mania, which is related to bipolar. Now, Parkinson's is a chronic illness. Uh, it doesn't go away. It's longstanding. Uh, let me turn to my co-host, Susie. What do you think about counseling therapy for people with chronic illnesses? 
Well, I think it makes perfect sense, especially since we're talking about illnesses that, as you say, are not going to go away. There is not a cure for Parkinson's, so it is something that the individual is going to have the rest of his or her life. So why not... Um, why not talk with some, with a professional about it? Maybe learn some good coping skills. Um, certainly, accept you know to get onto the path of acceptance of the disease and learning to live the best life that you can with it. Now, any chronic illness, medical illness, can go along with depression or cause some depression. But some of the brain chronic illnesses, like Parkinson's, actually cause a depression because the parts of the brain are degenerating or are affected that help our moods. So depression is part of Parkinson's as it goes on. Well, if the depression does inherently come along with somebody on Parkinson's, can that individual also be treated with an um, antidepressant medicine? Yes, and the SSRIs like Lexapro, Prozac, Zoloft, the ones that we're familiar with, are used frequently in uh, people with chronic illnesses like Parkinson's and depression. Now, there was another interesting study on diets not working in teenagers. The title is Diets and Unhealthy Fix for Teen Weight Concerns. And basically, they looked at teenagers who wanted to drop some weight and were put on a diet. What happens too often is they end up skipping breakfast, binge eating, and gaining more weight. So we've talked on the show before about the right way to lose weight long-term. There's an interesting study of 6,000 people now who've kept weight off long-term at least five years, and uh, many of those more than five years now, and they all seem to do the same things, and one of them is they don't diet. Susie? Well, you think about kids who are in high school and as they get ready to go to college and the lifestyle changes, and you can understand why a lot of kids put on weight, say, when they're 18, 19 years old. During high school, many, many kids are active in school sports, and they get into college and they're no longer playing a sport regularly. Plus, when they get to college, they're not having those home-cooked meals as much. They're going to the um, cafeteria at the dorm or they're bypassing it and going straight out for um, hamburgers, McDonald's, places like that, because they don't like the food in the cafeteria. So I think the combination can certainly add, as they call it, the um, freshman 15. Yeah, and I think that freshman 15 sometimes is a freshman 40. But I do think that kids are more aware of healthy eating these days than back in the dinosaur days when I was in college. In those days, a healthy meal was uh, maybe only eating half your fries with your hamburger. There was another interesting related study this week on uh, young people who cook at home eat better. Now, not many young people cook at home, but I think with the proliferation of good cooking shows uh, like the Food Channel, I love all those shows, although they used to have good shows many years ago. I remember as a kid I was watching Julia Child and watching... Justin Wilson. It was on PBS on Saturdays. They'd have three or four cooking shows, uh, Galloping Gourmet, et cetera, et cetera. They were all really good. But uh, if we can convince young people to try to cook more at home, uh, I think that we would do quite a bit better. The other thing is that there was a related study recently, too, that people who eat it, uh, if you eat a meal at a restaurant, you tend to get 60% more calories than when you cook at home. Now, Susie, we have young people at home. How can we get them to uh, cook at home or eat better? You know, it's tough, especially if they're in college and they've got 
college lifestyle of being up late, sleeping later in the morning, and then going till two, three the next morning. What I've tried to do with our son Dan is to try to compromise with him. I'll say, okay, I know that there's times you just feel you don't have the time to cook at home or even have the time to get to the grocery store to get the food to cook at home is I'll say, okay, I know you're going to go out and pick up uh, a bagel or sandwich here and there, but try not to do it as often. We know that they want to do it. It's easier. Sometimes it it tastes better. Say, okay, if you do it for one meal, how about the next couple meals don't go out? Pick up a banana, have some fruit for breakfast on the run, come home back to the back to your apartment to make a sandwich or or something for lunch but just try to cut back on it and i think that does help and you know traditionally we were thinking that uh young women would be more likely to cook at home than men but i don't know if that's true i the way i see some of the young men are are just as likely to uh be interested in cooking and and taking it up so if we could encourage them but also talking to young people early on about better choices and low-fat because it's a long learning curve. You know, when I see a kid, we test a 16-year-old, 18-year-old, or 10-year-old, and they have an increased cholesterol or they're a little overweight, it's a long learning curve. It's not like the next day we need them on a low-fat, perfect diet. But over a period of a few years, to gear up into a better diet, I think, is very helpful. You know, and I think our kids really, even though we may not think that they listen to them, I think they do a little bit more than we think. Recently, Dan was in the refrigerator and saw some string cheese. I bought the low-fat string cheese, and he said, why didn't you get the regular? Tastes better. And I said, you know, give it a try. It actually tastes good, too. So, well, why do we need it? We're not fat. I said, no, but why not make a healthier choice? Uh, you get enough fat in your diet as it is. You don't need extra. Yeah, and I think the kids really need instruction on easy things to prepare, economical. Most kids are relatively broke. Uh, The big barriers to them cooking at home are cost and time, so we need to get around that. Now, on another front, there was an interesting study this week on mental health woes in immigrant and immigrant kids, and they looked at anxiety and depression and other mental health problems Mostly it's anxiety and depression that we're talking about in American-born Asians and other native-born Americans. And they looked at the immigrants themselves and then the second generation, the kids. One conclusion was that the kids of immigrants from Asian countries were more likely than their parents to suffer from mental health disorders. Also, Asian-American immigrant women were far less likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, substance abuse, or other psychiatric problems than U.S.-born women. So Asian-born immigrant women, not uh, women born here, were less likely to suffer from psychiatric ills. Interesting. Another conclusion was that immigrant men with a good command of English were less likely to have mental health problems than those who struggle or can't speak English. So that speaks for pushing English. Susie? Well, the first population you spoke of, second-generation kids were having more anxiety and depression than their parents, who were the first generation. You know, what comes to mind for me is that maybe some of these kids, most of or all of these kids, are the first in their family to really embrace and or become Americans 
immersed in the American culture, whereas their parents maybe are still much more part of their own um, immigrant community. The kids via school, sports, are really putting their feet solely into an American culture, but then again also still being at home with their own primary culture. And that's a lot. That's a lot to for these kids to learn to balance uh, both cultures you know, and I know for many kids, too, they want to embrace American culture but still feel a pull from their parents not to lose their, old, their own identity. Now, Susie, you previously worked uh, at a high school that had uh, quite a number of second-generation kids from various countries. Uh, what was your experience with their struggles in high school, particularly trying to assimilate? Well, you know, they really worked very hard at it. And for many of the kids... It was it was almost um, like a paradox. The parents wanted them to do well in school, um, you know, and to go on to college as as they themselves did. But sometimes, for many of the kids, embracing American culture and all that comes with it was something that the parents did not want to see. And it's tough for these kids. They want to be accepted uh, and befriend ki- kids of all different cultures, whereas the parents really held fast to the notion that they had to. S- continue their own um, cultural ways. And it's tough for kids to be able to hold on to both. I'm not saying that they can't do it, but it can be difficult. So it's just interesting to me that if you look particularly at Asian women who come here from another country, they have much less risk of anxiety, depression than their kids. It's just an interesting phenomenon. Maybe we're doing something wrong in the United States, I'm telling you. Now, here was a study about the ongoing controversy with hormone replacement and breast cancer. Uh, There was a sharp decline in new breast cancer cases a few years ago that they thought because it was because uh, several million women were uh, less were on hormone replacement therapy than previously. So maybe it was due to less hormone replacement therapy. However, this is an ongoing controversy that goes back and forth, the pluses and minuses of hormones. I've seen this since the mid-80s go in a pendulum. Uh, First, everybody should be on hormones, then nobody should be on hormones, then it's in the middle. And it puts women in a tough position trying to figure out for their own selves, should they be on it? And I have some views on it. But Susie, as a woman who's considered hormones yourself and thought about it, isn't it a confusing, tough issue for yourself personally? Absolutely. A few months ago, I was really considering going on because of some um, symptoms I was having in menopause. And what I did was go out and get a second opinion, and I've tried to read as much as I can, you know, as up-to-date information as I can. Um, but unfortunately, there is no black and white with how we deal with it. We just have to take it as it comes. But I would throw out there to the listeners that if you're if you're really concerned and or puzzled by all of it, go out and get another opinion or two. It really helps to hear uh, what different professionals say. You know, maybe you'll hear the same thing, or maybe you'll hear different things, and it might help you make up your own mind. Second opinions often are... Uh are good ideas if you can get somebody good. Uh, sometimes it's tough then. Sometimes you're caught in between two opinions. But with hormones, I think that generally if women are having menopausal symptoms, uh, insomnia, a lot of hot flashes, a lot of mood swings, 
it makes sense, uh, very tired. To go on hormones for a limited period of time, it seems as if if we keep the doses low and we don't use them forever, for decades, or at least for more than five years, that the risks are very minimal. And there are some good things. Hormones are uh, very helpful for skin and bones and uh, other things, our thinking. Uh, also testosterone. We think during menopause some women are very low in testosterone. Uh, it goes down in men and women as we get older. And some women feel a lot better, a lot more energy going on a little testosterone. It, it, testosterone is actually safer in women than in men because one of the main real side effects of testosterone is prostate cancer. And of course, women aren't going to get that. So it's an ongoing controversy, uh, whether to go on hormones and who should and for how long. The prudent thing at the moment seems to be to get in a good opinion with somebody that you trust, consider low doses if we can, and for limited periods of time. Now, on another dietary supplement note, we've talked before about omega-3 fatty acids, and which is fish or fish oil or flaxseed or flaxseed oil. There's a variety of ways to get omega-3s. And there was a newer study showing that they may help with Alzheimer's or other types of dementia, although that's still iffy and up in the air a little bit. But almost every study is fairly positive for fish oil, flaxseed oil, fish. And um, I think that there's very few negatives. They've looked for mercury in the top, of the, uh, top 10 fish oil supplements, and they didn't find them. That was the only issue was, do they have mercury from the sea? So I think you can make a case that everybody should be on omega-3s, fish oil, flaxseed oil, something like that. You could also buy the box of flaxseed uh, and put it, it's really a nutty, crunchy, good taste. You could put it on yogurt or cereal. Susie? Well, I know you were trying to get me to uh, try the nutty, crunchy flaxseed at home, and I really didn't want to, but I came upon it at Starbucks where I go in almost daily for my tall ice decaf Americanos, and they have these flaxseed braids. They're like rolls with flaxseeds on top. And I tried one, and I must admit it was really good. And I'm pretty picky about um, trying new things, but it was delicious. And I felt, hey, this isn't so bad. If you get the benefits of the flaxseeds, why not? Absolutely. I uh, have thought about that, too, in, in Starbucks. I um, actually go to Starbucks regularly, and I probably need a 12-step Starbucks rehab program. I started out at regular coffee about 20 years ago and graduated up to half-calf, decaf, mocha, java. And, uh, well, anyways, that's another topic. There was a new study also that smoking greatly increases the risk of cervical cancer, another reason to stop smoking. And we've talked about that on this program before. Uh, several cancers that we used to not think about, like cervical cancer, uh, are increased with smoking. A lot of other ills that people don't think about, low back pain, often gets better after quitting smoking. But what are the best ways to quit smoking? There is a new medicine out from Pfizer called Shantix, C-H-A-N-T-I-X. And I've had some good early success, and it really looks interesting. It's a nicotinamide, like a nicotine receptor agonist, which means it sort of mimics caffeine's nicotine actions in the brain, uh, to me, that's the first of its kind, the first drug of this class that's been out commercially, at least in the United States. And it seems to help people 
Uh, we try a lot of other things for smoking. Susie, I know you were successful a number of years ago. How did you quit smoking? Oh, it's so hard. And anybody out there who's listening who's a smoker now, um, I, I do understand how tough it is. It's such an addiction. Um, but what worked for me is actually going into a smoke, smoking cessation group. It was at a local hospital. There was um, The facilitator was somebody from the uh, American Red Cross, and it was like a six-week, uh, six-meeting group where we, there were about six of us in the group, and um, we all cut down together, and then finally in our last meeting we stopped. The uh, facilitator gave us some good tips um, on how to cut back, but it's hard, and I think the most important thing that I took away from it is that I, I was able to do it, but I had tried unsuccessfully before, and I think you really quit when you're really ready to, you don't want to smoke anymore. But it's very hard. You know, I think it's the toughest addiction. I've had plenty of alcoholics who could quit alcohol, and smoking was tougher. Studies have shown that the more things you try, if you try the smoke enders type groups at the hospital that go like five weeks, if you combine it with some sort of nicotine over the counter, patch, the gum, maybe this new medicine, uh, Shantix, or there's other medicines, um, Zyban, Wellbutrin is now generic and that's been used. Susie? And for me, and this might help other people too, I, for the first few months at least, I explained to friends who did smoke that I just couldn't be near them to go out socially with them because it's it's very tough to go out to dinner uh, or w- go to somebody's house where there would be smoking, that I would just have to explain to them that, you know, f- I was going to have to take a break. I couldn't see them for a while because it was just too difficult to be around other people who are smoking. And I think you can say that for most addictions, Um at least for a while, until you're really through it, you just have to back away or not be around other people who are indulging in it. Another point about quitting smoking is the more people try to quit, uh, the more successful they are. So uh, although people say quitting smoking is easy, I've done it ten times. Uh, it's true. If you try five or six times uh, and you keep plugging away, people are eventually, hopefully, successful. This is the Dr. Larry Robbins Show. You can email us at DocLarryRobbins, that's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S, at AOL.com. I'm here with my co-host, Susie Robbins. We're going to take a very short break and be right back with all kinds of interesting tidbits, such as dangers for teenagers are lurking in their medicine cabinets, depression is common with chronic coughs, why the increase in autism, selenium and prostate cancer and a whole lot more so stay with us now more of the dr robbins show with your host larry robbins md on talkzone.com we are back this is the dr larry robbins show with my co-host Susie robbins you can email us at doc larry robbins and my website is headachedrugs.com that's one long word headachedrugs.com And our email is right on the website. In the next tidbit, there's another warning for parents that dangers for teens lurk in medicine cabinets. And we have seen an increase in prescription drug overdoses in the last few years in the United States. Prescription drug abuse is gaining, unfortunately, on alcoholism and illegal drugs and has become a huge problem. 
we've seen kids, not just high schoolers, not just college kids, but 7th, 8th grade kids who have gotten into their parents' Vicodin and OxyContin. Sometimes they overdose. And it's a very tough thing because uh, medicines and drugs do improve quality of life in general. However, the downside in this situation is that kids are going to get into their parents' medicines uh, sometimes take them with alcohol, and it's a disaster. Well, as a whole, it seems that many more parents today are much more aware of where their alcohol is and keeping an eye on it. And this speaks to parents have to be just as aware of where their pills are and to keep those out of their kids' hands as well. You know, unfortunately, when you see a lot of uh, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who've overdosed, the parents say they really had no clue because with alcohol, kids seem completely drunk, and sometimes as parents we do have a clue. With prescription drugs, they can hide it, and they're not going to reek of alcohol or smell of marijuana, and I think it's easier to hide pill abuse. Now, that's not just for teenagers. I think in adults, it's easier to hide pill abuse. Unless you're slurring or it's really obvious or somebody's stumbling along, they can hide it for quite a while. Now, in a related topic, there was another article on unintentional drug poisoning deaths are on the rise also in the United States. And this was basically deaths from taking too many pills or an overdose with alcohol. And it is at a much greater level than 10, 20 years ago. Now, also, the illegal drug deaths are on the rise, too, with narcotics and hallucinogens and other drugs. So somehow with all of our programs, maybe we're not getting somewhere, or maybe it seems as if we have a druggy culture. Now, Susie, you've worked with kids with drug problems and teenagers with drug problems. It comes under the heading, why do people do drugs? It's a complicated question. And certainly not a uncomplicated answer. Um, why do kids do drugs? Why do kids, why do people drink? I think a lot of it is probably self-medication. Somebody's feeling a certain way, they don't want to feel that way anymore. So the hope is that they swallow something, smoke something, and they're going to feel better, even though they know that it's temporary. And boredom, too. And boredom, too. You're right. But I think that um, a lot of the world does not have what I call good brain chemistry. And by that, I mean they didn't inherit that lucky brain chemistry that a few people have where they don't have any anxiety or any depression, and they're even. But most people have something. And if we feel down or anxious or bored, uh, it's easier sometimes to medicate it with a pill or with alcohol. It's a mistake, but it's easier. And if we could get people to address the underlying problems, which is not so easy, consider stress reduction and counseling and therapy and exercise and maybe medicine and all that. When we do uh, do all those things, drug abuse does go down. But it's a tough answer. I don't think we're going to eradicate drug abuse because people are medicating moods and it's part of the human condition that our moods are not so great. I wish they were. I wish we were all perfect, but um, very few of us are. But then I think it becomes part of the culture, like in college kids, where uh, it's TGIF and it's Thursday, Friday. It seems to extend it from Friday and Saturday into Thursday, Friday, Saturday with the binge drinking, and it's part of the culture. Okay, everybody's going to go and 
have seven or ten drinks or more, and it's an accepted part of the culture, which is not good. I think we have to unaccept this somehow in teenagers and college kids. Susie, what do you think? Well, I think the binge drinking is extremely extremely prevalent in colleges, but doesn't it also extend into adulthood as well? You think about the TGIF, thank God it's Fridays. People want to go out to happy hours on Friday after a rough week at the office. Uh, so maybe it starts in college, but that mentality certainly continues on after the, afterwards. And, of course, all kinds of people end up in rehab, young people, old people, middle people. But if you look at the typical person in a rehab unit, it's really a middle-aged man, women too, but middle-aged man, and alcohol is actually the number one drug of abuse. Now, on another front, there's an interesting new article about the rise in autism. Now, we've seen the autism rate in the United States go up. It's, sometimes it's hard to tell with illnesses because we redefine them. As time goes on, we look at the spectrum. We used to talk about bipolar depression, the severe end of bipolar. We 25 years ago, we would diagnose. But now we talk about the bipolar spectrum. So is bipolar really increased now than 25 years ago? Probably not. Same thing has happened with a lot of illnesses. But autism, it really seems as if the incidence the chance of having autism has gone up, and it's about 1 in 150 in the United States in, in among American children, which is pretty high. Now, a little bit might be uh, explained by the way that we define it. We look at the spectrum uh, of autism at the milder end, but it doesn't explain the, uh, the whole increase in the chance of autism among kids. 1 in 150 children born is really up there. Interestingly, in, in this recent study, rates vary dramatically among states. Uh, the rate was 3.3 per 1,000 in Alabama and 10.6 per 1,000 in Newark, New Jersey, in the metro area. Now, there have been a lot of rumors and questions why the increase in autism. For a while, they thought that it was the vaccine preservative thimerosal, which used to be a preservative, and now I don't believe it's in vaccines or the prevalent vaccines. And interestingly enough, there was a study in British journal, uh, a major British journal in 1999, linking vaccines to autism. turned out that the study was flawed and was actually backed by the trial associations in England who were suing the vaccine manufacturers, and they actually recanted and rescinded that study and better studies showed that there's really not a link with vaccines or none that we can identify at the moment. And the interesting thing is after that study came out and a lot of British women uh, and, and men, a lot of British parents, uh, refused to vaccinate their kids, they saw an increase in certain illnesses. We don't want to stop vaccinating kids and see measles and diphtheria and mumps all over the place or polio. Is it some other toxin in the environment? We don't know. Now, on another front, in an interesting study, selenium, which is a metal that you can take as a pill, actually, and everybody has a little bit of selenium in their body, may cut prostate cancer risk in some men. Now, I followed the selenium studies for a number of years. It's been a bad year for vitamins and herbs. Many have turned out not to be all that helpful, except for vitamin D and omega-3s. 
But selenium has been bantered about as helping to decrease the incidence of cancer, and I think there's a number of studies that have some ben- uh, show some benefit for selenium. In this one study, a higher level of serum selenium, and you can take selenium as a supplement, uh, resulted in a lower likelihood of prostate cancer. Now, interestingly enough, and we've mentioned things like this before on the show, multivitamins. Should people be on multivitamins? There was a recent study showing that men on multivitamins had more severe prostate cancer than men who didn't take them. It wasn't early prostate cancer that was increased. It was severe prostate cancer. And the theory was that once you got cancer, and this went for the prostate in the study, the multivitamin that the men were taking fed the cancer, and it became more severe than people not taking multivitamins. But it raises the issue, is that true with other cancers? How about breast cancer? How about lung? Do women with breast cancer uh, on multivitamins get more severe breast cancer because it's feeding the cancer? It makes you wonder. And there haven't been, in my mind, demonstrated studies showing benefits of multivitamins. The other thing is we've talked about this on previous shows also, when they looked at consumerlabs.com, looked at 20 top multivitamins in the country, they found that eight had high lead levels. Who would have thunk it that there's lead in our multivitamins? And that only two really held up as far as what's in the multivitamin. Uh, Centrum was a good one and women's one a day. So it's caveat emptor, buyer beware out there in vitamin land, folks. Now, Susie, I know you take a multivitamin. Um, what do you think about the new studies, personally? Well, it makes me question whether or not I should be taking my Centrum, although it's it's heartening to hear that Centrum's held up okay, but it still makes you wonder, should you take it? I think a lot of people out there, like myself, have probably thought, well, I don't always eat so well, so I feel better taking that multivitamin, that at least I'm ensuring I'm getting some of the vitamins that I might be missing. But this makes you wonder if you should be taking them at all. Well, as an aside, and not to get up on my soapbox, but let me look around for my soapbox. Here, I'm getting my soapbox here, and I'm getting up on it. Uh, we need big studies. We don't need anecdotal reports. For 40 years, people said vitamin E, vitamin E was great. It does everything. And it turns out vitamin E doesn't do the things that they said, and everybody stopped taking their vitamin E. Uh, the same has been said about a number of supplements, echinacea, bit the dust last year in a large study and we need to wait for large large studies they're just not out there i think on the multivitamins they are out there on vitamin d however there's more ahead after this time out on talkzone.com across the country and around the world this is talkzone.com the best in internet talk radio Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Now, in another study, uh, this was interesting. Low birth weight at birth increases your risk for depression as a teenager, particularly in girls, but not so much in the boys. Now, in the study, if the girls, uh, it didn't seem to follow for the boys, but if the girls were born weighing less than 5.5 pounds, they had an increased risk in adolescence for depression. And should we 
think about that and talk about that with kids who are adolescents or parents, it's just like any other risk factor. If you have a family history for depression, you're more likely to get it. Most things are genetic. So say someone who's born at four pounds, a young woman, and she's becoming 13, 14 years old, maybe we should talk to her about depression. I do see in my practice, uh, my practice is primarily headache patients and pain. We see a lot of depression, bipolar, and I see a lot of adolescents, and they've kept it to themselves. Maybe they've told a friend or two. They often don't tell their parents, uh, and their moms think that they're close to their kid, and all of a sudden it's two and a half, three years, and the kid has kept this depression from her mom. They don't tell doctors. So maybe if they were low birth weight, it's another risk factor that we should look at. You know, it's interesting. As a doctor, I tell, uh, for instance, high school seniors going to college, I warn them about depression. I say, if they start feeling really down, no motivation, big-time sleeping or eating differences, if they have suicidal thoughts, go right away. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go right away to the uh, counselors at school, to the student mental health. Call your parents. Tell them. But it's easier talking to my patients about that than my own kids. But I think that what I'd like to do is warn all kids about this, about looking for signs of depression, and that they have to be aware that there's treatments available. They don't have to just suffer with it. The other thing at colleges that's been a problem is the HIPAA laws, the privacy laws, have been a major problem. I think these HIPAA laws create a major problem in uh Hospitals, we call, our, your, your kid is in the hospital, and they say, well, even though you're the parent and uh, we can't talk to you at all, it's uh, a HIPAA law just because the kid is um, 21 years old or so, and it's, it's somewhat ridiculous. It gets in the way of treatment. And the same with depression. There's been some cases of suicide in colleges, and there's been a lot of publicity and articles on this where the kid commits suicide, People at the school knew, but they couldn't or wouldn't tell the parents. It was an iffy case, and uh, the parents uh, say that they were out, uh, that they could have interceded if they knew about it. And the the school is saying that there are HIPAA privacy laws, which is true. So we're all in this legal gray zone in these situations. Susie, you know, last year a friend of mine was telling me how her college daughter. Um, was having some issues with anxiety and depression. Mom was not nearby. She was in another state. She tried calling to the student health to get her daughter in. They wouldn't talk to her. They kept saying, you know, the, your daughter will have to call. And finally, she was not able to get a hold of her daughter. She was very concerned. She called back to student health, and they said, well, if you're that concerned, call an ambulance, which I suppose needed, you know, if if nobody knew what was going on with the with her daughter at that point. But it was just very frustrating that, um, one, there was such a long line of people ahead of her to even get in to see a therapist. And at the end, what the woman did was um, she sought out a private therapist off campus so that her daughter could get in to see somebody soon. Yeah, I think that scenario goes on all the time where um, uh, it's difficult in the communication uh, on the other hand, I don't think that the schools should be held liable when a kid commits suicide. I don't think it's their fault that the kid did that. I think that the United States laws with HIPAA and privacy have, just my one little, uh, in my humble opinion, 
have created more problems than they've helped. They just create barriers. They are enormously expensive uh, with what offices and everybody has to do. And I have I've seen some good come out of it, but very little. I think that the one thing that the HIPAA laws have done is make us aware of privacy issues and that we shouldn't just be blabbing to parents about their 21-year-old kids' problems, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, there's common sense and logic, and it, it's created barriers. But we've talked a little bit about suicide risk in younger people. I think that uh, the suicide phenomenon... Uh, it, it did go down the risk of suicide with the advent of the antidepressants in the 1990s, the newer ones that are better tolerated like Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, all of those. And when we see barriers to therapy, when we see less antidepressants used because a few years ago they made a, uh, a big issue out of the small increase in possible suicidal thinking among some people on antidepressants, which turned out to be very tiny, uh, there's no question that antidepressants decrease the risk of suicide. And when we have less people prescribe them who have moderate or severe depression, we have an increase in the suicide rate. So suicide, though, is something that we still don't know all that much about. We know how to assess it, but who gets suicidal thoughts and who doesn't? It seems as if it may be a genetic thing. There is a protein in the brain that may be different in at least in teenagers who obsessively think about suicide. It's a bizarre thing. But we uh, in the mental health field or dealing with people who are depressed constantly have to assess people for suicidal risk. And then the question is what to do. You can't just put people in the hospital and lock them away. You have to deal with it somehow as an outpatient. And then, you know, we um, get through a depression in somebody. And we look... They go through a major depression and they're 16 or 17 years old or they're 25 or 30. What's the risk of a major depression coming back? Well, we do know if they go off antidepressants too soon, the risk doubles. So we try to use antidepressants for at least a year after with a major depression. If they've had two or more major depressions, we try to use medicines either permanently or uh, much longer. There's a big role for therapy, but there is a risk for a recurrent major depression. But I do find that when people have gone through therapy, got on medicine, and they get their second depression, say it's three years or eight years later, they do know a lot more about it. Uh, they get treatment earlier. They go to a therapist and a doctor. And uh, I think it works a lot better than sometimes the first depression. It brings about this thing called kindling. It's like kindling logs on a fire. Well, with depression, our brain kindles itself. More depression gets more depression. So if you under-treat it, you're much more likely in a year and three years and five years to be depressed. So there's the case for treating aggressively and to remission, trying to treat depression. Same with headaches. More headaches get more headaches. And when we have a 17-year-old with daily headaches, it speaks to using some daily prevention medicine, trying to aggressively treat the headaches, and not let the brain kindle itself into daily headaches. Susie, now, when a kid is depressed, say a 17-year-old or a 23-year-old, what happens, it reverberates around the family, what happens between parents very often when kids are depressed? Well, I think there's a blame game going on. Obviously not for everybody, but it 
can rear its ugly head where one parent's going to say, well, your Uncle Sonny and your uh, your mother had depression their whole lives, and this is where our kid's getting it now. Because there's a frustration with how do we deal with this depression? The medicine's not working. Uh, our kid is feeling really, really lousy all the time. And if there's nothing, parents feel helpless in being able to help their kid, sometimes they're going to look uh, to point fingers, and that certainly helps nobody. You know, I think that's so true. Uh, parents look uh, and say, well, your grandfather was depressed. It's on your side. But what are we going to do? Our genes are our genes. It's interesting. Uh, for uh, the Sopranos fans, the uh, main characters, Carmela and Tony, their kid, in the show, was it became very depressed, and they blamed each other and started uh, yelling at each other. It's your fault, and I think that does go on constantly with depression and probably with a lot of other illnesses too. Now there was another interesting story this week on ibuprofen and anti-inflammatories affecting the heart. The main risk of anti-inflammatories over the counter is naproxen and ibuprofen, which is Aleve and Advil. And then the prescription ones, there's a lot of generics out, indomethacin and diclofenac, and then Celebrex is a what we call a COX-2 inhibitor. The issue is how much do these affect the heart? The, the main side effect of these is stomach. Each year, about 70,000 people in the United States gets a severe stomach problem or bleeding from anti-inflammatories. They also affect the kidneys. But these do affect the heart. And there's been a lot of misinformation about which ones and how much they affect the heart. The, the effect on the heart is relatively minimal compared to the risk to the stomach. And the medicine Viox a few years ago was withdrawn from the market. It was Merck's Viox, called a COX-2 inhibitor, because it increased the chance of heart attacks. But how much, how much was the risk? And uh, there's a lot of people who really desperately would like to have Vioxx back on the market. But it turns out all the anti-inflammatories increase the risk. But say you take the top 70 anti-inflammatories, they've looked at how much they increase the risk. Ibuprofen over-the-counter as Advil is actually one of the safer ones. Naproxen, naproxen was sort of in the middle. Vioxx wasn't one of the more dangerous ones. Uh, There were several more indomethacin, indocin was actually uh, one of the worst for the heart. But the big risk of these, and we do need these for quality of life. There are tens of millions of people who take these for their arthritis, for their quality of life of everything. Um, the big risk of these really is the stomach. So if your stomach starts hurting, if you have ulcers, these may not be great medicines for you. Now, millions of people in the country of GERD, which is G-E-R-D, which is heartburn, should these people not take anti-inflammatories? Now, I know, Susie, you had GERD in the past, have a little bit. Uh, can you tolerate a little Advil, or does it hurt your stomach? You know, I usually don't take Advil. So, you know, for that I can't comment on it. See, that's an issue that comes up constantly. Should people with, certainly with ulcers, they shouldn't take aspirin or Advil or that kind of medicine. But how about heartburn? How about Reflux. It does increase the risk of getting symptoms or pain from anti-inflammatories, but not. It's not as bad as having ulcers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Some people just cannot get by their day without taking anti-inflammatories, and then we use medicines that protect the stomach 
with the uh, and try to take them with food. On another subject, there is a risk with GERD with taking the osteoporosis type drugs like Actinel, Boniva, Fosamax. These are good drugs for increasing calcium and bone uh, resorption, but a lot of people, millions of people, do have heartburn, GERD, and it increases the risk for esophagus problems for heartburn. Now, Susie, you did have GERD, but you take the uh, osteoporosis medicine. Uh, has it been okay? I know after you take it, you have to sit up and can't lay down. Yeah, it's been fine for me. I take Actinel, which my doctor said was probably the most gentle in terms of giving you problems with um, the heartburn afterwards. But as anybody out there knows who takes one of these medicines, most importantly, it's important to sit up uh, for at least 30 minutes after you take it, not to lie down, which is for many people when they get the, their GERD, that it's the strongest. Yeah, lying down is the worst. It's the worst at night. Well, that wraps up today's show. We bring you each and every week the interesting medical stories and conundrums. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins. You can email us at d-o-c-l-a-r-r-y-r-o-b-b-i-n-s at aol.com. Our website is headachedrugs.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at headachedrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.